0: Hey everybody, it's Rick Nielsen from Cheap Trick. You're listening to your Morning Coffee, the podcast. Weekly music news for the new music business by two longtime Cheap Trick fans, Jay Gilbert, and Mike Etchard. We were Jay's first concert, 81377, right Jay? Portland, Oregon? I don't know. Have a nice day.
1: From Billboard, the 10 biggest music business stories of 2023. From
2: Hypebot, Mark Mulligan of Media his 2024 music industry predictions.
1: And for Patrick Clifton, the record label, Crisis. Mm-hmm. Well, Jay, this is our last episode of 2023. We've got a lot to cover. We are glad you are all here with us on this last episode of the podcast. So I say we get a going right about...
0: Stand by for transmission. This is London (laughs) Coffee. Wake up! The revolution is at hand! Your morning coffee is on the air. On the air. On the air. On the air. And now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Well, Jay, 2023
1: just... Flew by and here we are with episode 176 lots of stuff to talk about yeah man oh man oh man what a year it was it was an amazing year and and you're right it went by
2: really fast Um, before we hop in uh, thank you uh, to Rick Nielsen from Cheap Trick for that really cool intro and happy birthday (laughs)
1: he's 75 Seventy-five. Wow, it's still <laughs> out there rocking. Good for him, and and uh, as you know, maybe not everybody knows, but he also has maybe one of the foremost collections of vintage guitars. And you, there's there's a bunch of YouTube videos of him showing various instruments that he has off. And uh, yeah. he's done okay for himself, hasn't he, in that 75 years?
2: Yeah, he really has. And, uh, you know, a lot of these talented rockers, you know, Ann Wilson is 74, um, Rick Springfield is 74, you know, the Rolling Stones are 174.
1: <laughs> Easy there. And they're killing it. A, I mean, the new ben. album yes.
2: by the Stones is amazing. Uh, they're always amazing live. So age is just a number. Um Special shout out to Bobby Osinski. Uh, You and I have been teasing this for a few weeks. We finally did sit down uh, yesterday with uh, Bobby and we'll be dropping that as a special episode. Um, It's uh, about a book he put out that we absolutely love. Um, It's called The Musician's AI Handbook. Enhance and promote your music with artificial
1: intelligence. And man, it's always fun talking with Bobby. It is, and the the Musician's AI Handbook, it's a comprehensive look at how musicians, artists, songwriters, producers, and anyone in the music business can use artificial intelligence as a highly creative tool to generate new ideas and help to promote their music. Uh, And his book is packed with useful how-tos to help you get the most out of just about any AI platform while showing you skills and fundamentals. That won't become outdated. And as you yeah. and I have said, you know, he is our go-to source for a lot of this stuff, much of this stuff. And yeah. he has literally tried everything. Yeah. <laughs> That's so the thing, right? Is he's, amazing, yeah. he's gone in there and played with it. So
2: all of these things that you read about in this book, um, he's, he's worked on. He's tried it. And it also comes with a really cool cheat sheet with, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, things for image creation and video creation and things to help you in the studio to, you know, uh, separate stems or to take noise out of tracks. There's a lot that can be done with these things. And it's, it's so timely right now to have this handbook
1: on AI and music. So don't miss that episode with, uh, with Bobby. No. And it's, it's also interesting. He talks a lot about, you know, what works and what works well and what works. Eh, okay. <laughs> you know, cause it's not all supercharged. Great. You know, there's a lot of stuff out there that's still kind of early days for certain things. And right. Uh, but he just kind of fills you in on that, which is wonderful. It's a great resource. Highly recommended to pick it up. It's yeah. great. Yeah. Very good. Um, we, uh, we've we been talking
2: a lot about Immediate Family, you know, the documentary, the new album coming, and there was a really cool piece, I know you you read it too, in, in Billboard, written by our friend Steve Knopper. And mm-hmm. it was really, really well done. And if you don't know Steve, you know, he's a Billboard editor at large. He used to write for uh, Rolling Stone. He wrote that book about Michael Jackson, uh, the genius of Michael Jackson back in 2015. But what, well... My favorite thing he's ever done is "Appetite for Self-Destruction," the spectacular crash of the record business in the digital age. One of the best books ever on the music again, industry. Again,
1: it's 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 on the Desert Island List. Yes, <laughs> Mike and Jay's Desert Island List, which is if you don't have that one on your shelf, go get it. Ask Santa to send to bring it to you for the holidays. It's, yeah, it's it's a great read.
2: Yeah, and I had a chance to talk to Steve a little bit uh, this this last week. Uh, sort of about his story and about uh, immediate family. Um, Let's listen into that conversation.
3: Steve, good to see you. Yeah, thanks Jay, nice to be on again.
2: Um, So you wrote this article about immediate family, and for those that haven't uh, read the liner notes of albums over the last 50 years, who who are these guys?
3: So the the immediate family is a group of session musicians um, the the four main guys are drummer Russell Kunkel, um, bassist Leland Sklar, and two guitarists, Danny Korchmer, known as Kooch, as well as Waddy Um, And then there's another guy who's joined more recently named Steve Postel, who's a little, a little bit younger. So they used to be called many years ago, they were called The Section. And they played on every session in the 70s and 80s, it seemed like. They played with, it's an incredible who's who list. Linda Ronstadt, James Taylor, Don Henley, Phil Collins, Warren Zevon, on and on and on and on. Thousands and thousands of recordings, either as a collective unit or as individuals. Um, And they kind of rebranded themselves in roughly 2019 as a group of their, as sort of their own band called The Immediate Family. And then um, right around that time they did that, uh, This the, the documentary filmmaker, his name is Denny Tedesco, he had done the film on The Wrecking Crew, which was another very famous and important studio band in the 60s. Um, and, and he made a documentary that just came out last week called Immediate Family. Yeah, I got a chance to see it. <laughs> it's
2: absolutely amazing. When you watched the documentary, was there anything that surprised you? Anything
3: you learned from watching it? I think the surprising thing is... Well, I mean, it was it was all a lot of small surprises, like one of my favorite details in the whole film, which I put in the story was how um, the way that uh, Russ Kunkel and um, and uh, 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 Wadi Wachtel met each other is that they were going in L.A. They were one of them was coming into a studio and one of them was going out of a recording studio and they both happened to be driving 57 Chevys. At the time, this was the late 60s or the early 70s. And they both went, Hey, <laughs> you know, and they've been friends ever <laughs> since. And I asked them both that was the detail in the movie. I asked them both about that. And just to sort of illustrate the difference in their two personalities, Wadi said, You know, yeah, I, I many, many decades ago, my 57 Chevy broke down on the highway in LA and I just walked away and left it there. Meanwhile, Russ. Has lovingly restored and maintained his Chevy. He knew he gave me all kinds of detail about what the chrome fenders were like and this and that. And he he has restored it with his son, and it's become this really like father son, you know, very very uh, intimate project. So I just I love the idea that the two of them you know interpreted the meaning of their fifty seven Chevys so differently.
2: I was so thrilled to see your article, <clears throat> excuse me, because I loved the uh, documentary so much, and I thought you lovingly uh, put forth uh, what it was all about and sort of helped spread the word about these legendary guys. That some people have never heard of.
3: Yeah, it was interesting to me. I mean, I'm really, as you probably, I'm guessing, Jay, share my fascination with sort of uncredited backup bands. And there's a heritage of it, you know, There and there's tons of examples all over the place. Obviously, The Wrecking Crew, which played on Beach Boys recordings and Frank Sinatra recordings and all the recordings in the 60s, you know, are, are one prominent example. The Funk Brothers at Motown but one great thing about this group is that they worked with, uh, with the producer, Peter Asher, when they started out with um, James Taylor and Carole King and, and others. And Asher, who was an artist himself, he was in Peter and Gordon, um, he mm-hmm. made a point of giving them full credit and putting their names on all the records. And that started a thing of sort of, oh, well, if we know these guys, we can hire them. And Phil Collins literally did that. Phil Collins saw their names on a record, and many years later said, "I want to hire these guys for my studio recordings." That was not something that was possible with the with the wrecking crew and and with the Funk Brothers because their employers, their labels, their you know whoever hired the wrecking crew um, were much stingier about credit, and so they were sort of invisible behind the scenes guys. Whereas these guys kind of became sort of undergroundish rock stars unto their own right, and people like you and me just become fascinated with with the behind the scenes nature of what they do
2: yeah absolutely steve thanks for uh joining me and spreading some uh some love for the immediate family uh have a great holiday man really appreciate it
3: you too jay it's always nice to work with you i appreciate it thanks for doing
1: nice yeah Yeah, nice it's uh what an interesting record those guys are great you and i both have interfaced with the members of that band a little bit Mm -hmm. and uh and of course grew up at a time when Uh, learning, looking at record albums, and, you know, by this time they started to list the players on those records and you started recognizing, it's like, wait, I saw that guy's name on this other album. Yeah. And you know, these 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 guys were playing on everything.
2: Yeah. There was what a great playing. quote um, in the story from Russ Kunkel, legendary drummer. He said, unlike the Wrecking Crew, we got credit for our work, you know, as it was happening, not necessarily later. It changed all of our careers. It made us who we are today. So yeah, you're absolutely yes. right. We saw those names, you know, on things like Jackson Brown's Running on Empty, Stevie Nicks' Edge of 17, Hall Oates' Rich Girl, Warren Zevon's Werewolves of London, Don Henley's All She Wants to Do is Dance, and literally thousands of songs that these guys played on.
1: Yes. And what was different too about that next generation of players, like the, the guys that really kind of came up in the early to mid seventies was not only were they on the studio records, but they also were in the live bands. And yeah. so Good point. You, you got a chance to see them and it's like, oh, you could, you could put names to faces. Whereas the, the wrecking crew, the, the folks that were there really in the sixties and very early seventies, they just, they were just studio players for the yeah. most part. And they were just kind of anonymous. So, uh, yeah. interesting how things changed and those guys are all—they're—they're they're like kids when they get together with each other. Yeah, so many <laughs> great rotten. stories. So the immediate family's
2: new album, "Skin in the Game," will be released February sixteenth um, via Quarto
1: Valley Records. Um, don't miss it. And if I'm not mistaken, Jay, some of the photography on that album was done by yourself and your good buddy Chris Schmidt. That's right.
2: We did the—we uh, did all the photography for the new album. Um, we did the last album as well, and I'm telling you being in the studio, the photo studio, not the recording studio um, and just hearing the stories and when you see the album cover, they just released it um, it's sort of like this lounge area at the studio and they were just sitting down for a moment and they picked up their guitars and they just instinctively started to sort of jam and play and we just started snapping photos of that mm-hmm. and that ended up being the album cover so uh,
1: is that right oh yeah well that's and and that's i think you you being a photographer you know so it's it's those casual moments those those things where, where people kind of put their guard down for a second sometimes that gets you the image that you were looking for
2: 100 percent. i mean i've done probably six albums for rick springfield and the very first one we were done with the shoot i was packing up and, but I still had my camera out, and he was looking out the window at something. And I said, Hey, Rick, hold that pose for a second. And I took that photo. That was the last photo of the day, and it ended up being the album cover for Venus
1: and Overdrive. So you're absolutely wow. right. Yeah, that's cool. Very cool. Yeah. <clears throat> and then you're also reading that new Getty Lee book I saw that is out. Oh, my uh, gosh.
2: My F in life. Uh, this is one of the best. Uh, you, you and I love these sort of. Uh, you know retrospective biographies on people we we grew up with and for those who haven't seen this out there it's Getty Lee from Rush and the title of the book is My F&Life and uh, it is really just an amazing amazing book and i think i told you earlier I've been mispronouncing the drummer's name my entire life, and I've been saying it's Neil Pert. I hear it on the radio. I hear what? Oh, that's Neil Pert. The way that Getty pronounces it is it's Neil Peart. So um, I, I stand corrected.
1: And well, and I, one of the stories that comes out of that, or that you've I've read about, certainly is uh his his birth name was Gershon mm-hmm. but his kind of americanized name that he went by you know as a, as a young person and his parents called him Gary but his mother had a very thick European accent, and that came out as Getty. Mm-hmm. Getty, Getty, and that's <laughs> that's how he got his name, you know, because his mother sort of mispronounced Gary, and right. his friends caught up on it, and they kind of were kind of, you know, taking the piss out of that as they, yeah. So, yeah. so funny stories. And and again, if you've seen, you know, any interviews with, with Getty Lee and, those, and, and Alex, the guys in Rush I don't know if it's because they're Canadian they're just they just are the nicest people they you know really they seem are. so so balanced and so cool and just really laid-back guys who are yeah. super successful yeah
2: I, uh, I highly recommend it the first few chapters he talks about his uh, family and how they survived uh, the Holocaust Mm-hmm. And it, there, there's just so much in this book, you know um, about being an opening band and having maybe some headliners screw you over with the lights or the sound or a promoter who's you know got it out for you or whatever. Plus they were a little bit different than everybody else out there. Mm-hmm. and uh, they just embraced their weirdness and I, I highly recommend this book. it's I'm not done with it yet. I'm just about finished with it. Um, I'll finish it over the break here. But again, it's uh, Getty Lee, my F in life, uh, highly recommended.
1: And you know, Jay, since we are uh, at the last episode of the of the year, we do want to reach out and thank our sponsors because they have been with us all year and years prior. We certainly appreciate it. Uh, the Your Morning Coffee podcast is brought to you by our friends over at Bandzoogle, built by musicians for musicians. Bandzoogle is an all-in-one platform that makes it easy to build a beautiful website and EPK for your music. All the features you need for a professional website are already built in, including hosting and a custom domain name, dozens of fully customizable design templates, tools to sell your music and merch commission-free, commission-free crowdfunding and fan subscription features, mailing list tools to grow your fan list and send newsletters, social media integrations, and live support from their musician-friendly team seven days a week. Your Morning Coffee podcast listeners can go over to bandzoogle.com and try it free for 30 days. Just use the promo Code Morning Coffee, all one word, to get 15% off the first year of any subscription. That's Banzoogle.com. Uh, promo code morning coffee. Yes, sir. And we'd also like to thank Hypebot since 2004. Hypebot has chronicled
2: the new music industry and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. It's edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton with help from Alana Bonilla. Hypebot and sister blog Music Think Tank are published by live music
1: discovery and marketing platform Bands in Town you betcha bands in town over 80 million live music fans trust bands in town to get personalized concert alerts recommendations and messages from their favorite artists it's the number one artist service platform connecting over 590,000 artists with their super fans managers labels agencies and artists access their own dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms
2: yeah and we have to thank the music business association they host an annual slate of in-person and virtual events so industry professionals across the globe can come together to discuss hot-button issues and support the growth of the entire music business community. Join us for the Music Biz 2024 conference, May 13th through the
1: 16th at the JW Marriott in Nashville. Indeed. So big thanks to Zugo Hypebot, bands in town, and the Music Business Association for today and all year. We certainly appreciate it. Couldn't do it without y'all. Well, and listen, by the way, speaking of big thanks, every week I get to hang out with my buddy Jay Gilbert, and we have so much fun doing this. (laughs) If you don't know Jay, I say, what's the matter with you? Because now you should know him because you're listening to the podcast. But if you don't, Jay is a music industry consultant. He's the curator of the weekly Your Morning Coffee newsletter and a former executive with Universal Music, Sony Music, and Warner Music Groups. And as I keep saying, he is a digital music
2: ninja. Ninja, thank you. Uh, this this handsome man across from me, um, it, it's a highlight of my week to talk to this guy, and I can't believe that 2023 is uh, almost over here. Um, Mike is a longtime host of Sound and Vision Radio, formerly of SST Records, Warner Music Group, Capital EMI, and Universal
1: Music Group. And a checkered employment history it is. Well, Jay, before we start our stories... It's holiday music time, isn't it? <laughs> Boy, there's been some... If, you, uh, if you're if you listening to music, you know you cannot escape the holiday music thing. And you've got a bunch of interesting little factoids, because I know you... Uh, I do. Digging deep.
2: Yeah, you and I, we <clears throat> before we hit record, we were talking about some of our favorite Christmas albums. And, you know, this year, there were like... I don't know how many were released, but I know there was an article that showed like 30 of them that were released this year. So there's a lot of new Christmas music coming out every year. But you and I were talking about some of the stats and that's not really how people listen to holiday music. It's it's typically the ones, you know, the classics, the uh, Brenda Lee Rockin' around the Christmas tree, Mariah Carey, All I Want For Christmas Is You, you know, Bobby Helms, Jingle Bell Rock, you know, some of that stuff. And just a couple of fun factoids that you and I were talking about. Um, one is is that holly, uh, ho- holiday music, that's easy for you to say, typically starts to pop right after Halloween. And yeah, it ends sort of around New Year's Day, but it doesn't return to uh, normal, whatever that is, uh, listening habits until April. Um, I thought that was a little bit surprising. That's wild, yeah. Yeah, and the top thousand songs in a normal world, you know, pop stuff, it's about a third of streaming, typically. But for holiday music, that top 100 or 1,000 songs, that comprises about 80% of all of those streams. And a couple other quick uh, little factoids. 74% 74% of holiday music fans like to listen to songs on repeat and that's 14% higher than, you know, the general population. So, it makes sense, right? There's a holiday playlist, you play it over yeah. and over and over, over and again. Over. That's right. And then sort of the last one is I thought it was interesting geographically how um, people who live in the North, they get into holiday music quicker and heavier mm-hmm. and longer than the people in in the South. And I'm, I'm assuming that has to do a little bit with the weather.
1: One would assume, exactly. Uh, you know, and I was, that's, I was just sort of a factor as well. I was reading about the Brenda Lee song. Of course, that's "Rocking Around the Christmas Tree. Uh, there was an article somewhere I read, and she was... 13 when she recorded that track it's like oh my god 13 years old and yeah. she told the story Owen Bradley produced that if you don't know who Owen Bradley is you gotta look at him up he was a legend in Nashville uh, but they of course like every Christmas song you're not recording it during the Christmas season you're recording it in the summer and she said that what Owen did was it was recorded I think at the, at the old Quonset hut down in Nashville and he like cranked up the air conditioner made it super cold in there brought in some <laughs> Christmas decorations and set it up, and got her kind of in the in the mood for Christmas, and she just cranked it out. But again, 13 years old. That's you know, crazy. And did you
2: see, a couple of weeks ago, it hit number one for the first time. Yes. It's been out 65 years, and it hit <laughs> number one for the first time. So congratulations to uh, Brenda Lee. That is absolutely,
0: absolutely. amazing.
1: Yep, and she is still living. And she knew the Beatles and knew Elvis Presley. She's she's quite the that's uh, crazy. The when it comes to all those stories and stuff. Yeah. So, all right, Jay. Let's jump into the stories from Billboard: the ten biggest music stories of 2023. And there were a lot of them, weren't they? A lot of interesting and. Dynamic stories that we're going to be talking about well into 2024 oh, yeah. and beyond.
2: Yeah. yeah. But
1: and, uh, these were the biggies, yep. you know, as we talked about. The year saw both record revenues and widespread upheaval amid the rise of new technologies and existential questions about the future of the industry.
2: Yeah, this is a great piece written by Dan Rice over there at... Uh at Billboard. And let's just jump through a few of these. I mean, the first one major record setting tours, right? In, in a mm-hmm. year in which new tours from Beyonce, Taylor Swift, you know, they dominated. It, it was a long running farewell tour that kicked off what turned out to be a record setting 2023. So, you know, Elton John, uh, Kiss, there were a lot of these, you know, the Eagles, there were a lot of these sort of
1: farewell tours too. It was a big, yes. big year for touring. Yeah, it's, uh, and yet it was Beyonce's critically celebrated renaissance tour that logged the top spot uh, at the year-end Billboard Box Score uh, rankings, having grossed 570 million, but you can't... You, know, you still have to talk about the 900 million that Elton John made. Mm-hmm. And of course, Taylor Swift's era tour, which has not reported official numbers to Box Score, could surpass Elton John's tour as soon as next year to become the highest-grossing global tour of all time, having already reached An estimated $900 million across 66 shows. Isn't that crazy? In 2023. And then you have the film. Uh, In addition to that, and I would imagine
2: they sold a little bit of merch on that tour as well. Uh, A
1: little bit of merch. Yeah. So and and, you know, I think one of the coolest stories of of this year was remember when Taylor Swift uh, gave these unbelievable great bonuses to all of the folks that were supporting that tour, the truck drivers and the backstage folks and. What a lovely gesture. That Ed was well amazing. And, yeah. yeah. No wonder really. no wonder they
2: love her so much. Uh, the second piece was Taylor Swift ticketing fiasco leads to government pressure. And, you know, uh, let's not let facts get in the way of a, a good story, but <laughs> there was a lot of blame to go around. But at the end of the day, that was some incredible demand that our industry had never seen before. And we had also read and you and I reported on this earlier that, you know, they had the choice to spread this out um, and they Mm -hmm. wanted that big number. So they wanted it all on one day. So again, there's some blame to go around there.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And then one of the other big stories, again, a call for streaming royalties reform. You may remember, it was early of this year, Universal Music Group chairman and CEO Lucian Grange wasted little time in making clear his top priority for this year. Back on January 11th, he released his New Year's memo uh, to staff in which he called for reform in the way that streaming services pay out royalties, saying that the flood of content uploaded each day which, of course, as we've talked about many times, is uh, a lot, I maybe more than 100,000 audio tracks, according to Luminate, as well as the rise of functional music and fraud on the platforms was diluting the royalty pool available to artists.
2: Yeah, that was a big, big story this year, and we've talked a lot
1: about it. And really what
2: followed that letter was a string of partnerships uh, with Universal. First it was Tidal, then Deezer, Mm -hmm. then SoundCloud, and Spotify. So UMG announced uh, they're gonna study how that pro rata model, you know, where you're paid on market share versus the user-centric that we talk about all the time. You know, the pro rata model had existed for more than a decade, you know, and could it be amended to prioritize artists. So by year's end, a few new proposals were on the table. The first to arrive was Deezer's model, which prioritized active listening, users who intentionally search for or click on an artist's song, and also what they call quote unquote professional artists, artists who have accumulated 1,000 monthly streams from at least 500 unique users while removing non-artist noise, okay, that's essentially white noise and nature sounds, you know, from the available royalty pool and cracking down on fraud, malicious actors who attempt to game the system. I thought that was really interesting.
1: Very much so. Now, of course, this was met with some pushback from the indie community, which objected to the language and seemingly arbitrary baseline number of streams required for payment. Uh, But again, it sparked debate in the industry. So it it really got the conversation going. Yeah, it sure did. Uh, The next one was
2: about lyrics and the sub headline was some long running legal battles
1: wound down, but a lyrics battle looms. Right. So this past year saw the resolution in one way or another of several long-running legal issues that have percolated through the music industry, Uh, Megan Thee Stallion, Kesha's long dispute with Dr. Luke, uh, copyright case, even the unsolved, the arrests and the unsolved murders of Jam Master Jay and Tupac. Uh, Meanwhile, other cases involving Lizzo, Axl Rose, and others have sprung up and are ongoing. Yeah. Lots of things happening in in the legal space this year. Yeah. Exactly. Um, the other one, which we talked about a little bit, is layoffs, more layoffs, and the, exits. Yeah. Even with plenty of money moving around the music business, the depressed advertising market, a tough year in tech, and pivoting business priorities have led to a brutal year for layoffs. The year started with thousands laid off at Google, Amazon, and Spotify. And ended with even more layoffs at Spotify, this time some 1,500 people. And the looming prospect of layoffs at Universal Music Group as well.
2: Yeah, and there were more layoffs, you know, Motown, Meta, Instagram, Downtown, Warner Music Group, Utopia Music, Discord, CAA, TikTok, BMG, SoundCloud, Amazon Music and title. And that's just a partial list. You know, as many of these companies either went through a painful self-assessment or made a conscious decision to aim for profitability at the expense of headcount. Many of those came with high profile executive exits as well, though perhaps the most high profile executive to leave this past year was from Rolling Stone, their chief, uh, Jan Wenner. Yes,
1: absolutely. I often think back to how, how many times did you get laid off? (laughs) <laughs> in your career? Um, honestly, um, I typically left. And on my own, I think I only was let go once during a layoff. Oh, really? Okay. I think I was laid off four times at, at for different companies. One, two... And then and, you know labels are changing and collapsing and merging and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. It might have been five actually. Yeah, yeah. So it's uh and, and it's this time of year tends to really amplify that stuff. Right, and don't they tend uh, to do it
2: this time of year typically? This time of year, like yeah, in November or early December, which is like the worst time to sort
1: of the do it. But time. I guess
2: it's near the end of the calendar year, and they want end to of start. the calendar
1: year or the fiscal year exactly. Yeah. And uh, I started at <laughs> when I was at EMI. Uh, they had started a catalog division they called eprop. and I started on I sh- this should have been a, a harbinger. I started on Friday, March thirteenth. And oh, wow. I, you know, I just learned where the restrooms were on on march twenty eighth. They they pulled everybody into the uh into the conference room and announced that they were folding up the division. Wow. <laughs> I was, I'd only been there for two weeks. Like you, you didn't I even like, know what? where the paper clips were yet. <laughs> exactly. You know, and then I was so, at Universal, well,
2: MCA, which became Universal, mm-hmm. um, both of those companies. I was there almost 20 years and we were acquired, you know, I guess four times. And so we right. always worried, you know, will the new owner slash and i was on reengineering when we merged with uh, polygram And, you know, you just keep your head down and try to do the best you can, but it's not always the best person that stays on. It's when you've got two companies like that, sometimes one executive gets to keep X amount of people and the other one in his department gets to keep X amount of people. So it could be whose person are you? How much are you making? There's a lot of factors that go into that. So if, if you're let go, it just, it doesn't mean that you're the inferior uh, employee. It's just, that's the way these things go.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it. It takes a thick skin, let me tell you. Yeah. All right, moving on. Getting back to the stories. So this uh, you also saw the big Scooter Braun saga. Oh, yeah. Uh, mega manager and Hybe American CEO Scooter Braun been a lightning rod in the biz for a few years now. Uh, really, ever since buying up the Taylor Swift catalog and his acquisition of Big Machine, and then of course flipping it to Shamrock Holdings in the fallout from mm-hmm. uh, Swift's condemnation of the deal. So when seemingly out of the blue, several of Braun's high-profile management clients appeared to begin dropping him one after another this summer. The Swifties had a field day, and conspiracy theories ran rampant as to what was going on behind the scenes. Yeah, and we had re-records
2: prior to that. I mean, Patsy Cline had re-records. This has been going Mm -hmm. on for a long time. And for those that don't know, it's typically in a record company contract that you're not able to um, re-record the songs that you've recorded for that term, for that record label, until later. And... You know, the re-record clause uh, expired, and Taylor Swift went after that with a vengeance.
1: In a way we've never seen in the industry before, ever. And so it's interesting to see that, you know, kind of downstream stuff that happens. And that, of course, as we reported also this year, has changed a lot of recording contracts. They have extended in many ways saying you can never re-record some of those uh, tracks that you record for right. companies. So, to see kind of how this f- stuff happened is interesting. To to see what down the road, another story this this uh, year, Jay was country's dominance and the rise of regional.
2: Wow. It's been such a big story this year. I mean, country has just been a beast. Um, For years, country music has occupied a comfortable place in the U.S. music business, chugging along, you know, as the fourth biggest genre in the U.S. without really shifting much from a steady 7% share of the market. But this year the genre exploded and that's due to a confluence of its streaming audience fully maturing. They were a little bit late to the game and a slew of high profile, high quality releases led by the overwhelmingly dominant Morgan Wallen. I mean, just massive. These huge yep. albums by Luke Combs, Bailey Zimmerman, Zach Bryan and, and others. So as well as a controversial but high profile, number one singles from Oliver Anthony, you know, mm-hmm. that rich Men north of Richmond, Jason Aldean, you know, that was a lightning rod, you know, try try that in a small town. So that boom has ultimately pushed country up to 8.5% of the overall market and 10.4% of the current music market. You know, that's albums that have been released in the last 18 months. So that's, that's a rise of 22% and 45% respectively year over year. And that's a massive gain, you know, for all of these Nashville labels.
1: Right, and then another genre that upended expectations at labels was regional Mexican music, Mm -hmm. a genre within Latin that had never before produced a hot 100 hit, and that became the dominant genre in Latin music by far in this past year with genuine stars like Peso Plumo and Eslabón Armando emerging, among others. It's a success story that gets to the heart of the next generation of the music business. Languages and national borders matter less than ever, and what constitutes a hit is broader and can come from more places than was previously possible. Yeah, and uh, our friend Bruno Del Granado over at CAA has been telling us uh, about
2: this yes. for a couple of years now, and he's absolutely right. The next one we talked about a little bit last week, and that's reports of the catalog market's decline remain premature. And you know that it's been sort of a feeding frenzy over the last few years of companies like hypnosis and KKR and BMG and primary wave and all of these, you know, buying up uh, intellectual property rights. And there's been a lot of press about it lately. And a lot of people are thinking that it's in a decline when it's really not. Glenn Peoples reported last week in the ledger that it's, it may be leveling
1: off, but it's, it's certainly not the decline that people have uh, thought it was. Exactly. But as this article says, uh, you know, in the past five years or so, the same question has emerged. Have we reached the end of the catalog sale boom? And once again, the year has produced the same resounding answer, no way. (laughs) While many of the highest profile legacy catalogs are officially off the market at this point, there are still tremendous amounts of money being thrown around for both older artists and current hit makers, with sources telling Billboard of Late that while multiples have certainly come down, the appetite and competition in the space... Has not lessened one bit. No, sir. In the past year
2: alone, Katy Perry sold her catalog to Litmus Music for $225 million. Justin Bieber sold a bundle of his rights to Hypnosis for $200 million. Metro Boomin' sold some of its published catalog to Shamrock for $70 million. And deals with undisclosed uh, price tags went through for the rights of Graham Nash, Nelly, Pointer Sisters, Sonny Rollins, The Hollies, cool in the gang and, and, and including two members of the doors. So
1: it's, it's not as cold as uh, some people might think it is. No, Uh, but they say for this amount of action to be continuing at a time when questions linger over the most high profile of these catalog funds, hypnosis following a shareholder vote that ousted its board chair and led to a new executive appointments is hugely notable. Very interesting.
2: Yeah. And then the next one uh, we talk about a lot and that's the focus shifts to
1: AI, artificial intelligence. Yes, indeed. Artificial intelligence has been on the radar of the music biz for much of the past decade, yet it was decidedly on the back burner for years as the industry focused on streaming, TikTok, virality, and Web3. That decidedly changed in 2023 as AI took its first major society-wide step into the mainstream of pop culture and the music business fully shifted its attention to the possibilities and concerns that such a profound technology shift could bring. Yeah. I mean, the sound alikes,
2: you know, they've given rise to copyright concerns and artistry. Production has moved fully away from human creation and into the hands of technology. The sheer volume of music and audio that it allows to, you know, it's... It's monetary, it's existential, these concerns and and companies like YouTube and Meta, they've released tools to help artists and, uh, you know, regular uses, utilize the technology with repercussions that won't be understood for years. But again, just to plug that interview we just did with Bobby Osinski, that's going to be going live here. Um, you'll understand a lot more of what is going on with AI in music, not just music production, but in marketing, creation, altering. It's it's a must listen uh, if you want to get a grip on this AI stuff
1: yeah exactly but great great rundown from billboard a lot of great stories in there and of yeah. course we're going to be talking about so many of these moving into 2024. yes sir a doubt. but uh fun to look back and go oh yeah that's right this happened this year <laughs> so yeah. uh the next story jay it's from Hypebot. mark mulligan of media's 2024 music industry predictions
2: yes um and we uh we're big fans of mark Mulligan. And his team over there, Chris Thackra, you know, Tatiana Sirisano, Keith Jopling, the whole group over there. There's a just a great team over there. And we love their reports and their insights. And so when Mark Mulligan speaks, we typically uh, listen. So as you mentioned, this is uh, his 2024 music industry
1: uh, predictions. Indeed, uh, the first one, which is really interesting, the algorithm is not listening anymore. This is our headline prediction. This is uh, this is Mark and, and company saying that, um, and one we think will have far-reaching impact across all forms of entertainment. Algorithms on large-scale platforms once super-served users, encouraging them ever closer to their respective niches. Now algorithms are increasingly pushing users to the content that supports platform monetization priorities over user priorities. Users end up feeling that the algorithm is not listening to them anymore. This trend will accentuate in 2024 among the world's biggest consumer platforms, resulting in user dissatisfaction and creating a window of opportunity for new user need focused platforms starting the cycle all over again. Yeah.
2: And I'll jump into number two, creation as consumption. But before I do, I just want to mention that Mark and his team have a really good track record over there for accuracy uh, in their prediction. So again, number two, creation as consumption. If the late 2010s and early 2020s were the era of the creator, The remainder of the coming decade will become the era of the consumer creator. The proliferation of consumer-focused creator tools on a major uh, platforms and beyond will herald the next phase of the consumerized of, or I'm sorry, the consumerization of creation. That's easy for you to say. Not only will this see more content uh, be user-created, thus competing for consumption time, creation itself will become entertainment thus adding to the competition for time.
1: Yeah, interesting. I really like this next one. It's the rise of the threat-averse. <laughs> the metaverse may feel like a bus that never quite arrives, but something much more tangible is already gaining scale. The threat-averse. This is the growing trend of social platforms becoming toxic environments in which diversity of opinion is transforming into intolerance, divisiveness, and hate speech. Accentuated by bot farms and clandestine actors, enabled by uh Failing platform moderation policies, mm. social platforms are shifting from places to share opinions to platforms where more moderate voices no longer feel safe to speak up. Threats, bullying, fake facts, and aggressive counter commentary have created the new defining framework of the online social world, the Threativerse. Ooh. And the next one is the future will be gated communities.
2: Change is wrought as much by reaction as it is by action. The rise of the threat averse creates the foundations for what will come next. The shift from open social worlds into gated communities where groups of like-minded individuals can converse safe in the knowledge that they will not be subject to abuse and attack. The early promise of everywhere everyone's social has proven toxic and unworkable. Expect more social platforms to ramp up gated community features. These will also feature, I'm sorry, these will also prove to be a boon for fandom. Artists and their uh, other creators will be able to converse with fans without having to worry about torrents of negative discourse from users who can currently occupy and even co-opt
1: their open fan spaces. Wow. Uh, the next one is AI will continue to reshape entertainment while the right fr- while the rights framework will continue to be disputed and defined in 2024. AI technology will continue to accelerate both in sophistication and adoption. It will find its loudest voice in the consumeration of creation. Consumer, I'm sorry, the consumerization of creation, as you just said, Jay. Sorry, but its subtler and more pervasive impact will be a steady a steady assimilation into creative work. Flows becoming an ever more utilized set of tools for creation across all forms of entertainment from chat gbt creating lines of code for games through 11 labs generating podcast narration to uh, beat oven creating soundtracks for influencer videos yeah and
2: if you like wow. this stuff as much as we do they're offering a free uh, webinar called the algorithm is not listening that'll be on january 11th uh, look in your morning coffee or on Hypebot or media for more details details. Um, always fun to read uh, these predictions from Mark Mulligan at media.
1: Yeah. Really great stuff from Mark though. My goodness. Lots of things to provoke thought and uh, kind of look ahead to 2024. Our last story, Jay, it's from Patrick Clifton, the record label crisis. Oh my gosh. Wow. This is so good. I wish we could
2: read the entire thing, but we're just going to read a couple of uh, highlights from it. Um, Patrick Clifton is a music and tech consultant based in the UK, former head of music for Amazon Music UK, Australia and New Zealand.
1: Yes, indeed. Uh, So it, it starts off by saying record labels are in crisis. They can't break emerging artists. And this is creating a problem that will impact every part of the music industry in the years to come. A new generation of artists is not building fan bases that will buy gig and festival tickets in two, five, or ten years' time, and is not popularizing songs that will have ubiquity in our culture. Independent artist service companies have had success bringing artists to the mainstream, but lack the scale and market power that major labels can deploy to turn popular artists into global superstars. Yeah, we talk
2: about that uh, marketing funnel, um, and uh, Patrick says that the funnel is now a bucket. (laughs) Before streaming, record labels managed newly signed artists through a funnel. They'd signed a bunch of acts, you know, getting buzz among the A&R community. These would be presented to music journalists, to uh, radio stations, excuse me, uh, other tastemakers for support. And then what would happen is some would champion a subset of those artists, which led to radio airplay and space and retail stores for their first records. A yet smaller subset would sell enough to receive ongoing investment from their record labels. Their success generated enough hit albums to pay the bills. The number of hit acts you got out at the bottom was predictable. It was a predictable fraction of what you put in at the top. So it made sense to feed the funnel, or this bucket, with large amounts of artists.
1: But today, every track sent to a streaming service is available. Exposure is prioritized through technology rather than influence. The funnel is now a bucket. Everything dropped in the top makes it to the bottom, though a very small number of songs and artists gaining visibility and subsequent popularity through DSP technology as well as the network effect of social media and TikTok. Mm. In recorded music, label culture hasn't caught up with the switch to streaming. This lag is understandable, according to the IFPI. Until 2017, most revenue was generated from sales of physical formats and downloads. It was only between 2017 and 18 that streaming revenue exceeded 50% of the total. Wow. The album charts are still the primary measure
2: of success for artist development, even though music fans have cherry-picked their listening from albums ever since Apple unbundled them over a decade ago. At least 30% of the streams that make up the chart will come from passive playlist plays. The weighting of the chart between formats means any Heritage Act with a decent fan base can drive a top five chart position through pre-order of a physical format. This makes it easier for releases with physical formats to have a top five chart
1: position easier than digital, uh, digital only releases. So in the post transactional bucket, success takes a long time. A track might be popular, but the next track might go through the same process to find an audience algorithms help but with so much music and on offer to a listener raising awareness of an artist through music takes time tiktok is another manifestation of pressure to drive short-term success but tiktok is a platform for broadcast at unprecedented scale, it is not designed to drive familiarity with an artist. When consumption migrates to streaming services, there is no emotional connection made as neither medium can contextualize the artist's life or personality. Thus, many TikTok hits are one-hit wonders. One industry figurehead told me a A&R teams are just spending their whole day trawling TikTok. This need for TikTok hits distracts from AR's core role— which is working on artists' musical development for long-term success.
2: Yeah, top-down, bottom-up.
1: In the transition, I'm sorry, the transactional
2: era, moving music through the funnel was what got it into shops. Sometimes if the artist didn't have a cool backstory, labels would manufacture it. This top-down approach doesn't work anymore. Authenticity is a quality that is highly valued by this generation of consumers. Social media, And the conversation around AI and deep fakes makes the manufacture of buzz seem completely dated. Expensive music videos, radio ads, even paid social may be obsolete since we're no longer trying to turn demand generated by radio listening into purchasing at a particular time. So there's
1: a growing body of evidence that suggests new artists who are enjoying success are emerging from scenes they participate in or are creating around themselves. They're honing and developing their craft as recording and performing artists in this safe space where their core fan base came from. That fan base expands as they release more music and or as their scene expands into broader geographies. Yeah, they drop tracks and use data to monitor their growth over time.
2: Given that they're competing with music that's decades old, they don't mind revisiting songs from their repertoire if those songs blow up. Their generation is used to side hustles, to wearing multiple hats. So these artists are not limited to or defined by being musicians. But this polymath identity helps them grow
1: their own brand and expand their audience. From consumption to engagement, music has moved beyond the paradigm of consumption to one of engagement. No longer do music fans wait, pa- wait passively to consume music. They're actively engaging with it and with each other about it. The culture continues to lag, but here are some possible solutions that might be tested to help catch up. All
2: right, so here are, here are four of those possible solutions. Number one, sign less, take more time allow teams to dedicate more of their time on each individual artist. They also need to be given more time to demonstrate success. This will require different financial goals and longer recoupment windows, but hopefully with less money invested on generating false buzz or advertising that doesn't work, upfront
1: investment will be smaller, as will the project risk profile. Right, so number two is different measures of success. Not only could we use a different album chart that better represents the momentum shifts of DSPs, we also should look for different measures of success entirely. It could be about audience size across streams, sales, and tickets. It could be about revenue size, share of musical wallet, the ability to sell tickets, total digital engagements, or a combination of all of these factors.
2: Wow, number three, new purpose, new teams. The job of the label is no longer to dictate to music fans which new artists they should like. The job of a label is to listen to the music fans to see which new artists uh, are resonating with them and to invest in those new artists to accelerate their career, leveraging their reach to take them global or their A&R expertise to take them mainstream, the foundational value proposition of global record labels. Data analysis to level... Uh, you'd find at a, a tech
1: firm should be a core competency at a record label. And this last one is really interesting. Merge frontline and catalog. In any business, there's a risk, revenue, and profitability mix between different categories or products, with the highest revenue and profit drivers offsetting low profit or loss-making products or categories. In the round, the business is still profitable, yet record labels hive off catalog music, older repertoire that is normally recouped and therefore highly profitable, into a different division. The labels that sign the repertoire no longer enjoy the financial upside of that music and are in the trenches singularly focused on breaking new music. This exacerbates the pressure to get hits quick and the sense of panic when it's taking time to build momentum around new music. If labels could take back control of managing and exploiting their catalogs, it could help generate the conditions necessary to extend the time horizon for new artists to be successful. Wow. this Interesting is, take on that exactly. one. Exactly. This is so well done.
2: Uh, again, this is from Patrick Clifton. Um, I reached out to him. We've been exchanging, uh, messages. Hopefully we can get him on the podcast after the holiday break and talk through some of these things. I just thought this was a very sane and interesting look. Uh, at the new music business. Great job.
1: Well, it is. And, you know, you and I have talked about this so many times. When you look at some of the top albums of all times, let's say Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon or The Eagle's Greatest Hits, records like that, you know, the the Dark Side of the Moon was the sixth or seventh record that Pink Floyd released. And, you know, they had a slow and steady rise and then and then a, a huge lift with Dark Side of the Moon. But no al- no artist is given four or five albums anymore. So rare. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And it's
2: it's uh, almost this, you know, this track based economies. It's sort of like uh, what Travis Tritt had when he got his first record deal. It was a series of tracks. Um, And that's where it is today. A lot of it is, is so much about the song and about those track releases that artist development isn't what it used to be. But uh, I I like what he's laid out here. I think it makes a lot of sense. I'd love to talk uh, more about it.
1: It does. And on that note, we're going to wrap up the show. So uh, if you enjoy the show, we'd certainly appreciate it if you tell one friend. Uh, And of course, big thanks to BandZoogle, HypeBot, Bands in Town and the Music Business Association. And to you, our listeners, as we wrap up 2023, Jay and I cannot thank you loudly enough. So huge thanks. And on behalf of my brother, Jay Gilbert, thanks for listening in today. We will be back next week, which finds us in 2024 on the Your Morning Coffee podcast.
0: You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know.